0: Welcome to the Uptime Podcast. We have a packed show this week. Top of the list, Vineyard Wind finds a bomb on the ocean floor.
1: And GE have shelved plans that they had to um, make a new factory to supply the Dogger Bank uh, wind farm in the UK, while Enicon in Germany have received 500 million euros
2: in state liquidity assistance. After that, we'll speak about some wind energy... uh shutdowns here in the Midwest over in Minnesota and then how they tie together with the Midcontinent Independent System Operator, otherwise known as MISO, uh, to expand the power lines and to try to alleviate that bottleneck.
0: It's going to be a busy week, so stay tuned. We'll be back after the music. Right, so the first story for the week, Vineyard Wind, which is off the coast of Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Uh, they're evidently exploring the bottom of the seafloor, looking for places to put wind turbines, and they happen to stumble across an unexploded ordnance. Uh, it says here that the Hornbeck Offshore Services support vessel, Mystique, uncovered a potential unexploded ordnance at about 130 feet of water. Now, why this is important is evidently back in World War II that whole area was used as training grounds. So there's all kinds of ordnance down, down off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. In fact, I started digging around a little bit, and I guess some of that ordnance just washes up on shore once in a while. So you could just be walking your dog on the beach, and there there's a uh, <laughs> an unexploded piece of ordnance oh. right on the beach. Right? Yeah uh so it sounds like it's a pretty significant issue so this is the first warning i've seen and uh vineyard wind actually puts out these alerts like hey everybody there's a uh you know black hole or an exploded ordinance or some sort of great white shark or something out you know in the water i don't know why the coast of massachusetts is so treacherous but it is right now (laughs) it's crazy uh, we have some of the biggest uh great white sharks i mean we would we would hold our own up to Australia for sure. These things are massive and they've, they've been attacking people lately. It, it's like a real life Jaws out here right now. You can honestly <laughs> say that, but now you got Jaws and you have this unexploded ordinance. It's like this Godzilla movie thing that's happening. I don't know if you saw the last Godzilla, but that's how they woke up Godzilla was. They, they set off a nuclear weapon. Shark. And yeah, so sharks. And Sharknado. <laughs> Sharknado, exactly. We can yeah. have a Sharknado yeah. <laughs> in, in our own backyard. So, I, I, guys, I'm, I'm expecting to see more of this, and especially if we start going up and down the coastline around Long Island, New York City, New Jersey, even all the way down to North Carolina, I think there's going to be all kinds of ordinance out there that we haven't really thought of before that we're going to have to pay attention to. Joel, I mean, you've probably seen some of this stuff. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, depending on who you talk to and what organization you talk to, it's something between the level of 70% to 90% of the seafloor in the world has never been mapped, right? So there's so much stuff down there that we don't know about. Now, the, all the operators that have been putting an offshore wind over in, the, in Northern Europe, they've been doing the same thing. So you got to do, there's a bunch of stages to it, right? So you're going to do a geophysical campaign. So you just map, you're going to ping with sonars, build a, build a 3D, 3D elevation model of the seafloor, uh, and then sometimes you're going to go down with, um, magnetometers to find any kind of, uh, you know, unexploded ordnance, metal, steel, anything like that, that might be just on the surface or on the subsurface. And then you're also going to come with like a near, a near surface, uh, geophysical campaign to look for olders, um, how deep the muck is. And then the sand is, and then the bedrock is and all this stuff. So there's a huge campaign that happens before any of these things get, um, installed out offshore and, and this UXO here uh, on the coast of the U.S., I think people will be surprised at how many we will find as we move forward here. I mean, it's a daily occurrence in a mapping of a wind farm over in over in the nor- in Northern Europe. But World War II, right? right. <laughs> Bomb- bombing back and forth across the English Channel, we get that. But there will be there'll be there's also going to be some pretty cool, I would imagine, uh, shipwrecks and other things that we'll find that we haven't seen before because it's the the massive scientific uh, campaign to map the, the you know the seafloor and the sub. The sea subfloor down to a couple hundred meters uh, is going to be unprecedented uh, off the east coast and wherever they do offshore wind.
0: Well, you'd think all the treasure hunters would be really following this very closely because I think that's how they found some of these treasure ships, right? All the off the coast, particularly South Carolina and North Carolina.
2: Mm -hmm. There's a couple out there. And I know, you know, some of the, some of the cool, they found, uh, I just read this not too long ago it was a f- a frigate they called it but it was a basically a steel armored ship from the from the civil war that they found off the coast of north carolina oh, doing wow. one of these surveys and, right so it was like it because it was covered partially by the seafloor you never saw it when you know a fisherman's sonar goes by but when you're <laughs> on a magnetometer all of a sudden you got this big glowing uh hot spot on your map what is this let's go investigate it and that's what it was
0: does did this, did this sort of scans also happen when we get to floating wind? Like how far, how deep can they yeah. scan? Oh, really?
2: Oh, man. yeah, Oh, yeah, because the big thing with floating wind, of course, is when we go to either drive piles or set anchors for mooring chains. Right. So not only is there the, 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 the remote sensing part of it, but there's a physical geotechnical campaign that has to do drilling and bore samples to understand what kind of soil is there. So can the anchors hook? Are, are you going to need a 20-ton anchor here, or are you going to need a 1500 ton anchor, what are you going to need? Are you going to be able to do subsea micropiles? How are you going to do this thing? Um, so all of that geotechnical and geophysical investigation has to happen no matter where you're going to install anything offshore.
0: Wow. So there's a lot of work to do before we get oh, to yeah. the floating wind. And California, I would assume the next stage is California, then the Gulf. But California from world war ii there's all kinds of ordnance dumped off the coast of california because they're oh, yeah. trying to protect the coastline right just like they were on the east coast so but there's yeah. it, it drops off the continental shelf drops off so so fast that it's going to be almost all floating wind out there so they got a lot of work ahead yeah. i mean they could probably have years so of scans they, to go
2: oh yeah and so when you go a geophysical campaign in deep water there's a if you follow that technology sector there's a lot of really really cool companies coming out with what they call an auv which is basically a drone for the subsurface right so these things can be rated one one two three thousand four thousand five thousand meters of depth rating so to get the resolution you need on the seafloor they'll take them and and they'll have a like a mothership this is a lot of what's going on now drop one off and then that mothership will communicate with it acoustically and then guide it subsurface so if you're in california and 1,500, 2,000 meters of water, that right. AUV is actually 100 hundred meters off of the seafloor, mapping it at high resolution, while the Whoa. ship above is controlling it wirelessly.
0: Wow. Yeah. And that'll be the first time where we've really done a, a really deep, thorough scan of some of these areas, I'm sure, particularly off California. Yeah.
2: Wow. Yeah, off of okay. Cal- exactly. So that's like there's not that much mapped, right? In oil and gas areas, of course, this stuff has all been done. Um, sure. But we're not installing a lot of offshore wind on top of subsea oil and gas infrastructure. Right.
0: <laughs> right. I hope not, uh, at least. Yeah. Well, it's it's an interesting uh, development. And I just keep thinking we're going to find all kinds of, of unique items at the bottom of the, of the ocean floor. And speaking of oceans, mm-hmm. uh, GE, Rosemary's Old Stomping Grounds, mm-hmm. is was in, in plans to build a blade factory. Again, something Rosemary was heavily involved in. On on T which is on the eastern side of the of England, and it, it was a it's a port area, and the the goal there was to create blades and then ship them off to sort of Scotland area in the North Sea for these big wind farms, Dogger Bank being one of them. And GE had committed about the middle of last year to do this project, and then it came about Christmas time, and you could see things had slowed down quite a bit, and they just announced that they're not going to. Uh, take over that factory. So, there's existing buildings on this site, an old steel factory that GE was going to take over and use to build blades. And it really tells you how f- fast this market is changing because uh, GE only has one confirmed order in the UK for their Dogger Bank complex, while Siemens Gamesa keeps winning job after job after job over there. Uh, and, and so, and in that kind of fluctuating environment, Rosemary, I, I how does GE deal with this? I mean, how do, how do you project out in the future? Do you, I guess you don't build factories. I guess you take over existing factories. Maybe that's the approach now. Like GE did. Like if there's a factory there, I'll take it. If I don't need it, I'll just walk out of it instead of yeah, putting well, in, you know, 40, $50 million into it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there would still be a huge amount of investment to, you know, make it suitable for making uh wind turbine blades rather than oh, sure. steel. Um, and I don't know how many buildings there are that are big enough to make offshore wind um, wind turbine blades because you know they're they're massive. I know it's not just the the length which you know can be over 100 meters now. it's also the width because you have to be able to rotate it and if you've got your you know your the widest point of the blade is you know well over five five meters. Um, it you need to have a ceiling higher than that. Um, yeah and I, I don't even know what the the very longest blades are probably getting close to, yeah, closer to ten meters even in their widest point, and that's that's challenging to find buildings that are big enough. But I guess that they were trying to hedge. You know, the, they they want to be able to supply this huge market, but they don't want to have to pay to, you know, commit to that before they know if they've won the orders or not. And so it yeah. sounds like that's what they've done which is no doubt incredibly frustrating for the you know the local government and the people that live there and wanted those jobs they probably Probably thought it was quite certain i know it's not When is the only time that you see this it happens every time in australia that they want to open a new coal mine or something you know they make this uh immense number of jobs that they estimate are going to be associated with it and even when the projects do go ahead the number of jobs is always reduced down to like 10 percent or less by the time it actually happens because wow. everybody knows that local communities want want jobs and that's how you get them on board is by um inflating the numbers so yeah I definitely got sympathy for people that thought that this was you know coming to their local area to help help with problems they might have but hopefully I mean Dogger Bank is still going ahead right it's just not GE that's going to be right. making as many um, turbines for it as I thought so hopefully, um, if Siemens Gamesa is winning most of the contracts, hopefully they're going to, you know, maybe they will need to ramp up their manufacturing in the area or they'll see this opportunity. And yeah, I mean, there's still going to be work there associated with the wind farm.
2: Yeah, I think Siemens just, uh, they just opened a new factory. I don't know if it's new or repurposed in outside of Hull. Right. Uh, for yeah. for these offshore wind, wind farms. So they're they're capitalizing on it. But
0: right. The queen has she visited there, second place, the queen, and <laughs> yeah, blessed it or whatever the queen well, she does. What does. She doesn't go have many places anymore, so that's brings. a big
1: deal. Yeah,
0: yeah, she's yeah, I've seen pictures, it's yeah. it actually is pretty cool. Yeah, she's walking around in there, it's, it's pretty awesome. And Rosemary, you're right, they were talking about making 750 jobs and, and another 1500 in supply chain. So that, that's that's Teaside's not a very big community, so we are talking about 2,000 jobs, that's a, That's a really mm. big deal. And, but there's there's actually two parts to this facility that exists in T side. The other uh, part of the facility is going to be taken over by a South Korean monopile fabricator, basically a steel company that's going to be building monopiles there. So at least at least they'll have something in that factory, which is good. And with this uh, latest Boris Johnson leaving office, you got to imagine that a lot of these UK tenders are going to get put. Set aside for a little while, maybe. I'm not sure what's going to happen because Johnson's not supposed to leave until what the end of this year when the next elections September, are. So we I have several months.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, September. That,
1: that's what I saw. That early. Okay. That, that early. Is that early? I don't know. Maybe it is. In the U.S., we have a similar thing. In this. It's pretty soon. In Australia, our government is maybe a little bit more similar to the UK than it is to the new guys are, um, because we also have our our head of state, our, our prime minister, is chosen by the party the gov- party and government um so obviously when you directly elect a president then you know exactly when that's going to happen and when that's going to change but in Australia right. we went through our last prime minister was the the first one in over a decade to have served a one full term actually from election to election that was <laughs> yeah, we had a decade of them just changing constantly and it can happen like like that you know like <laughs> One one day you've got a prime minister and you've heard that people are a bit annoyed with the way that they're managing things. And then the next day there's a new prime minister who you might not even like. I've, there's been plenty of times where I didn't even, couldn't even pick out our deputy prime minister out of a lineup, for example. Like, who, is, who is this new person? What's going on? Um, so to me, it feels very slow that, you know, I mean, especially because the pressure has been on him to leave for so long, um, months and months. Um, and now it's like, oh, so we've all agreed that this guy's a dad and has to leave and even he's accepted that now, but we've still got a few more months, <laughs> a few more months of hanging around. That seems so weird to me. Um, like what can you get done in that period when you already know people don't trust your judgment? That's the point. So oh, now I'm just going to yeah, hang around and make a bunch more decisions uh, and everyone's going to, you know, work real hard to implement those. It's just so strange. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Really strange.
2: I can't speak the same for the UK, but I know in the US, when we have a lame duck president or senators and whatnot, a lot of the things that happen in that period are more social than economic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're just trying to pass them like, eh, cement some legacy stuff and yada, yada, yada. But but the curious thing about offshore wind is it's it's in that intersection between social and economic. So, so maybe something will go, maybe it won't. Yeah. Mm. Just- Timing isn't on his side,
0: I suppose. <laughs> the timing is bad. Uh, and as yeah. there seems to be a lot of turmoil. Have you guys been watching the Netherlands, the farmers in the Netherlands mm. uh, with their tractors protesting the changes there? It's just a lot of weird things happening simultaneously in Europe and in the United States. All will throw us into that mix. <laughs> that doesn't bode well for renewable energy projects because if there's if there's turmoil and other facets of life that doesn't make governments very stable yeah and they're not thinking long term typically they start thinking very short term but think about that next election and all the all the long-term projects just kind of get put on the sidelines until the elections are over
1: but I do see a lot, it like it's a lot happening. I'm certainly getting more inquiries um, than than ever from Europe about, um, yeah, clean energy projects that are going ahead, and a lot of them have EU funding. So maybe that's a more stable kind of um, way of of funding things. And yeah, definitely a lot of things are are moving forward and everybody that gets in touch with me has a really (laughs) ambitious timeframe of, you know, when they want to, um, yeah, achieve their plans. Yeah. There, there is a lot, a lot happening there. And I've seen, I mean, in my tiny, tiny business um, I've, I've, You've got way more um, of a, as a proportion of people getting in touch with me. It's way more from Europe than normal. Usually, it would be you know largely U.S. startups, tech startups, and investors. And now there's a lot of like actual um, <laughs> physical projects to install to use these technologies. You know, all the new emerging energy technologies to build. You know, say a uh, a microgrid here or a, you know like a some making a traditionally polluting industrial process green somewhere else or, you know, all, all sorts of different things, They're, you, you know, like actually starting to um, organize construction projects to get these things in the ground um, fast. So I am noticing a bit of a a change to the speed that things are happening in, in Europe um, over the last few months compared to, you know, the last few years, I see a change.
0: Have you been following on the Nord Stream gas pipeline where they it's down for maintenance at the moment i think it's some concern that it may not come back up again you
1: need the inverted commas the the scare quotes yeah i I think that's necessary (laughs) in this case yeah i have seen that and um i know that also i've seen that germany is preparing to just you know cut the cord anyway because um they don't one that he, he because other than have to right i mean when you know that it could get cut off at any point better to feel the pain on your time frame rather than you know it to happen and mm-hmm. as soon as there's a cold a cold snap and then all of a sudden you get no notice and you've got no no gas i mean they can build up their stores uh, to a certain extent no one's got that much storage, though. That's not enough storage to be like, oh, we'll cool call for the rest of winter now, and we can sort something else out before we run out. Like it's it's not like that. Um, you know, people have days of storage if they're if they're lucky. Yeah,
0: it it did seem like Germany was trying to store natural gas and whatever storage facilities that they had. To prepare for winter. That's what it seemed like, that they were trying to stockpile. Uh, but Austria, I read, I think it was today, where Austria is going to bring back some cold fire power plants that have been mothballed mm. because they're concerned about this winter and they need a little bit of time, like we discussed previously, a little bit of time to bring those back up to speed. It, it is a really changing energy front. Maybe Son of eight, maybe Clint's, mm. uh, Glenn Ryan's company will get some action over in Europe because. It's a big improvement in, in, in solar efficiency with, with his idea. We're going to take a short break right here. When we come back, we're going to talk about 500 million euros that are is a liquidity assistance to Intercon. After the break. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you
2: every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com
0: news. All right, we're back, and Rosemary is going to give us her two cents on a five hundred million euro, which is, I think, the dollar and the euro are finally at unity once again. So, it's, I guess it's five hundred million dollars of uh, liquidity assistance. So, Intercon, uh, which is one of the German wind manufacturers, uh, the only one left, maybe is that the only one left in Germany? Rosemary, is it just sure. Intercon,
1: uh, Nordex? Isn't Nordex
0: German? I have to look it up because Nordex may be German. I'm losing, I'm losing track here.
1: Yeah, it's headquarters in Rostock. Um, management situated in. Oh, there you Hamburg. go. Yeah,
0: I knew that. Hamburg's okay, it's
1: a great city. Oh, Hamburg. Yeah, where we're gonna be. Yeah, yeah I love Hamburg.
0: <laughs> so Intercon's. <laughs> <laughs> so Intercon is about to receive five 500- hundred. Million euros uh, from the federal German federal government, essentially, and as part of their COVID uh, support structure. And it, it, it sounds late to us in the United States. All that sort of COVID support's already over. It's just what's causing, in part, causing really high inflation in the United States, combined with a, I think, a recession. Is all the money's been dumped into the economy? But I guess in, in Germany, they're, they're still at it. So it's a half a billion dollars to intercon now intercon says it's going through a transformation and it's trying to uh basically break even for 2022 with the 500 million so that indicates maybe intercon is really struggling if it needs a half a billion euros to just to break even uh but you would think that it makes sense for the german uh economy to support intercon and if it's intercon and Nordex. Combined with this requirement now that all the uh, municipalities in Germany have to dedicate 2% of their land mass to uh, wind energy, it seems like there's a built-in marketplace right in Germany at the moment. And does that make sense, Rosemary, that it because they've just created a marketplace,
1: mm,
0: that they need to keep the wind turbine manufacturers around?
1: Yeah, otherwise they're going to end up stimulating um, you know, foreign foreign countries, companies uh, with that, that policy. China, so. for sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I, I I don't know if this is really related to the the pandemic. anaconda has been in struggle town for for a lot of years. Um And I mean, my personal take on it is that Enercom were were way too German focused for way too long. I mean, early on, that was was just the absolute amazing best strategy um, to, you know, focus on the German market because, you know, from the early 2000s for a while onwards, that's where um, not just wind, but, you know, all renewable um, projects seem to be happening in Germany. Um, But... For a long time after it started tailing off in Germany and definitely like I spent quite a lot of time in, in Germany while I was living in Europe because, you know, it's a nice country with with great food and did a lot of skiing there and stuff as well. Um, you know, you talk to people and the sentiment around wind had Changed a long time ago, at least a decade ago. Um, people were not overall positive about wind, especially. I was spending a lot of time in Bavaria and down in the south. There, I don't think they ever really liked it. Um, and Enicon was really, really stubbornly, in, in my, this my word, my opinion, that they were just stubbornly focused on Germany, on selling only to the German market and making everything in Germany. Um, and they certainly they have a reputation for being, uh, you know, like a really, really, you know, nice um, wind turbine, high quality I know wind turbine um, technicians have told me it's like a Mercedes Benz of um, wind turbines. When you know that you're going to be working on an Enercon turbine that day, you're like, oh, you know, it's like luxury inside. I've never been up one, but, you know, I, I know talking with the engineers that I have um, worked with at Enercon, they're definitely not like good enough is good enough type engineers. It's like, let's optimize this and optimize that and um, you end up with a premium, premium product that maybe really suits a German, um, engineering mindset, but wasn't as suitable for the Mm. the rest of the world who are um, much more focused on, on price. And as long as the quality is good enough that it doesn't, you know, break down and cost you more money, then, then that's kind of more where yeah external markets are. So For years, they've been having problems keeping the German factories open because, you know, it's more expensive than um, other manufacturers were moving offshore um, closer to the emerging markets. I mean, they were emerging back then. Now they're, you know, mainstream, um, you know, India, for example. Um, So, uh, yeah, I'm a bit sceptical. This has so much to do with COVID. I think it's just a a continuation of, of problems they've been having. But Maybe with this new policy that is going to bring a lot of German demand again, maybe we can go back to Hennecon's original strategy of really serving that market and, you know, if there's local content laws, then that will really suit them keeping their, their factories running even if they are oh, higher sure. cost. So um, yeah. maybe it'll work out for a bit bit longer for them, but I would think that in the long term they're still going to have to think further ahead than than Germany and make it work because eventually Germany will fill up, you know. <laughs> There's only a finite number of places that you can put wind turbines in in a, such a densely populated place as Germany.
2: You think that that the local geopolitical climate might have been another poke in the side to the German government to say, "Hey, you've got a, a wind turbine manufacturer here. We're going to be focused on renewable energy. Make sure they make it because yeah. we need them."
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I hope so, and I hope that all countries are doing that. Um, because yeah, it's uh, we we can't yeah. just think about what's the lowest cost way to make this this year you you know now we're all like okay well you know what are we what are we doing to our supply chain security if we have these um single countries who i mean even if they are friendly countries now how can you say that's going to be the case in five or ten years you know so yeah i I think there is going to be a a shake up and a more on on onshoring and countries making sure that they look after their own industry um yeah at least i hope that they they do that i think that's good for world peace
0: (laughs) rosemary i was thinking of you the other day i was watching uh elon musk and don't kill me for this because i don't think you're a big musk fan (laughs) but he he was walking through his his factory showing off the rocket engines and uh talking to this amateur scientist rocket enthusiasts as he's doing it so he's like taking this guy around his his rocket engines and showing them how the new rocket engines have fewer components than the old rocket engines like oh yeah okay that makes sense and he kind of chimed in saying the first problem with engineering is you try to optimize things that shouldn't be there in the first place yeah like do you really 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 need this thing and maybe the best situation is to remove it and i I think about intercon sometimes because those turbines are so beautiful i mean when you see a wind (laughs) turbine it looks really awesome it's an intercon every single time and i i think well it does look cool but maybe it has that sort of mentality of we're trying to optimize something that doesn't really need to be optimized yeah and that's maybe one of the reasons it hurts them it's kind of like buying a a expensive car same sort of thing of buying a ferraris like that right
1: yeah no i agree that's my god i have to go check my three three ferraris (laughs) (laughs) right that was definitely my impression working with the the engineers there, and you can see. I actually think that they got an architect in to design the that egg shaped nacelle that they um, that they had. Right. Uh, they've moved. I think they did too. But they've moved away from that now. I don't know if they moved back, yeah. but it was too expensive and it didn't really do anything. I mean, the whole um, shape. You know, they've got the blades, um, got the optimal aerodynamic design. Usually. You know, non anacon wind turbine, the blades are just uh, like a cylinder at the root because, y- you right. know, the blades making torque and torque is a force times a, a a distance. So the closer you are to the hub, the closer that distance part gets to zero. And so the closer your, your torque gets to zero, there's very little to be gained by optimising the aerodynamics there. Um, and if you want the optimal design because the, you know, the blade's not turning as fast close to the hub, like that's, you know, wind speed. So you need a huge cord to get the same, like the optimal amount of, um, right. of, of lift produced there and thereby um, torque. Right. So you have to add a lot of material, a lot of weight to get this, you know, optimized aerodynamics and everybody else is like, okay, this isn't um, the, you know, when you trade off all these different um, parameters, we find that, yeah, the best thing to do is just a simple cylinder at that point, but not Enercon, you know, Enercon has the um, much more optimized aerodynamic shape than a cell. At least it used to be this, you know, beautiful egg shape to disturb, um, to reduce the disturbance of airflow in the early parts of the blade. And um, it, it doesn't really give you a better overall turbine, but every individual part is optimized, you know? Um, So I, I right. do think that that's a bit like that. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not anti Elon Musk at all. Like, I don't think he seems like a guy I would like to be friends with, but I, I think that he's doing really good, good things for engineering and, you know, for the energy transition. And I ignore what he says on, on Twitter. I think that's a pretty, I don't know why anybody does anything different to that, but <laughs> um, but I disagree that you could say, oh, you know, engineers want to optimise things that don't need to be optimised. I mean, it, I think it has a lot to do with your um, mm. your business structure. If you've got someone that's in charge of some component, that's, you know, their whole team is is organised around this one component. Of course, that's what they're thinking of. And they're going to try and optimise that. You know, it's up to the person in charge of the business to make sure that you've got your structure in a way that makes it possible to innovate across... Boundary lines. I mean, you can always tell like a company's business structure if you just look at their bill of materials and how, you know, how how the systems and subsystems and components <laughs> are all broken down. That's a that's a you know a company flowchart basically or an engineering department flowchart. Um, so right. yeah, I I would disagree that you should put the responsibility for that on on the shoulders of the engineer whose job title is probably linked to the component <laughs> that they're working on. They're not right. going to be thinking about, does this component need to exist? That needs to happen at a, a higher higher level. So, yeah, maybe he can take some responsibility Let for that. Let me ask you. If he's if, a chief engineer.
0: <laughs> well, that's just it. I, that, that The chief engineer is just what I was thinking because that's the person usually in an engineering organization who is, like, responsible only to the head of the company. And their job is to go around and kick the tires and say – what are we doing? This doesn't make any sense. You're spending all this money on a, on a piece of this hardware that doesn't add any value here. Do wind turbine companies have chief engineers anymore? It seems they had gone away in like their early 90s. No, no. They, Do they have people yeah, like Yeah, that?
1: yeah, yeah, they have. And I, I believe that Elon Musk is the chief engineer for all of his um, engineering companies as, as well, or at least a podcast I listened to implied sure. that. But yeah, uh, I mean, um, the company... That I've worked for and with all had chief engineers. Definitely, I mean they're, they're signing off on. Um, oh really? Yeah, uh, I mean GE has a, a lot of different chief engineers. Some of them were yeah quite, quite quirky, and <laughs> you'd you would you know know who you were going to run <laughs> into at the uh, at your design reviews, but. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you um, mostly people are using a stage gate develop product development models. So you know, you has got maybe like five um, gate gate points um, where the chief engineer has to get involved and um, sign off on the decisions that have been made. And you know, they'll they'll be looking at what's right. the uh, biggest technical risks and what have you done to address those. And there's you know certain criteria that they have to to meet before you can move to the next one. Um, so yeah I mean I was doing um, product product development the whole time that I was working at LM wind power which is um, was eventually GE and so yeah every every month mm. at, at least I would be in some design review with with chief engineers and um, yeah it's an important important role and I I really enjoyed working with with the chief engineers.
0: <laughs> it, it make it makes you wonder if that yeah and that maybe it's a European thing where that, that has continued on I know in a lot of I'm working on a lot of different programs and chief engineers are really hard to stumble across. It used to be in any sort of serious design discussions, the chief engineer would be sitting at the end of the table, Mm. just observing everything that was going on and making recommendations at the end. But I haven't seen that in a long time. And it's a very odd person to be in that role, right? It's a, it's not an easy thing to do. Think about all the skills that you have to have to be able to do that. And it would make you sort of a, Odd person, in a sense. <laughs> Why do you know all this stuff? Yeah. Because well, they, just, someone they who's, just absorb it over the 20 years. It's someone
1: who's got a long history in the company. So they have, you know, a lot right. of knowledge about what's been tried, what's failed in the past. So part of the job is to make sure that you don't just try and reinvent the wheel constantly and, um, you know, they can predict how things are going to um going to break i mean uh, uh, to me that's what i think you know engineering intuition or the difference between an engineer with 20 years experience compared to one with two years experience is that the 20 years engineer has seen so many things break that they (laughs) they know how things are going to going to break that's you know basically yeah (laughs) basically what you get when you get a senior engineer is the ability to predict things breaking um yeah, so, you know, they're making sure that you haven't missed anything obvious um, and, you know, they're making usually making suggestions about, oh, we tried this, you know, sometime couldn't that solution work here? Um, and they're just somebody that's not knee-deep in the project day-to-day so they can bring some sort of fresh eyes to it as well usually. Um, so I was going to say, like, aside from the chief engineer being in charge of, you know, like, chain um, – big shakeups of the way things are, are done i also think that brand new employees especially ones from outside the industry um really should be tapped for that and i know every time i would get a new teammate um before or like from outside i like a brand new hire before mm. they do all the reading and go to meetings and start to absorb the culture you want their fresh <laughs> beginner eyes on a problem, to point out, you know, like, why do you do that? You know, say all the dumb, they, they think that they're dumb questions. Say all of those mm-hmm. because y- you're never going to get that again once you are absorbed in the company culture and um, you know how things have been done and you kind of start to uh, – uh, respect your colleagues and think that they've obviously made smart decisions before all of that you want to be oh, okay. able to say why did they do that it seems like it would be easier to do it in this other way or you know, something like that and i i think that's a really crucial part of innovation and, and that's something that i think that um Europe doesn't do as well as the the U.S. because I think in the U.S. people are moving really? industry a lot more. Yeah, I think in, Euro, in Europe...
0: Oh, that's probably true. In
1: Europe, people have much more linear career paths. Um, so they get expert, really expert at one thing. Um, and in America, it's much more common to get poached from a, another industry where they can see that you've got some things that will help. And people have seen a lot of different ways of doing things. And so you can get mm. more innovation that way. That's, that's my... <laughs> That's my opinion about it. the yeah, engineering differences. Yeah, between
0: I, I the think US there's, yeah, I think there's a big difference between the two. I think it's sort of cultural too, and that's what seems, in my opinion, what drives it. Japanese engineering systems are totally different than American engineering systems, versus South American or European. They're just there's a lot of cultural differences between those two, and that sort of sets the bar of like, where the, where, where the weight swings? Does it swing to the top of the organization or to the bottom of the organization, or is it kind of spread out? Mm. And there is no right answer. I don't think it depends on the industry. It's just something that, um, you know, as, as times get a little bit tougher here, you tend to lose people like chief engineers because they're expensive mm. to be the ones that kind of, you, you lose that top and you lose the bottom and right in the middle, that's kind of doing the thing will be the ones that stick around typically. Mm. So it's going to be an interesting couple of months here. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about power line congestion. And it's a big topic in Minnesota because some of these counties are losing thousands and thousands of dollars on tax revenue. And what part of the United States is going to do to try to remedy this situation. So we're going to be right back after this short break. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not
2: actually is very predictable and very preventable strike tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. it dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory lps so you can stop worrying about lightning damage visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more read a case study and schedule a call today
0: all right power line congestion in minnesota you would think yourself well minnesota it's not the biggest of states in the world right and it's it's a Decent-sized state, but it's about the size. Of, well, it's about the size of England, maybe a little bit bigger. Uh, but it's not that It's. Yeah, it is. That sound right? really big. Isn't I Minnesota mean, like half the size of England's England? The whole country. Like England's not that big of a place either. Yeah, but you could drive across it in a couple of hours. This isn't like Texas, where it takes you a whole day to get across. Come on, guys.
2: Yeah, I think you could. You could drive from the southwest corner to the northeast corner in about seven
0: hours. Eight yeah, hours. there you go. There you go. But they have a lot of wind power up in Minnesota, and they're having trouble because you can generate as much power as you want to, but unless you have a, a means of getting it to market doesn't matter. And they have a transmission line bottleneck in southern Minnesota because uh, Rosemary are going to talk about us geography for a minute. There's a sort of like a <laughs> lake in the way. So Minnesota has to go down through Iowa to kind of get around to, well, sort of uh, you, you want to get to Wisconsin. Uh, and to Chicago with that power, Indianapolis, those areas, and they really can't. So everything kind of going southern Minnesota can't get to where it needs to go. And what's happening is they're turning off wind turbines, uh, the older wind turbines, because and keeping the newer ones on. Because the newer ones have production tax credits. So those wind turbines generate more revenue than the older ones. And the production tax credit rolls over in about 10 years. Joel, is that right? In 10 years, it expires
2: yeah, depending on which version of it you were on, it's a little bit different, but yeah, well, that's, as a rule. yeah.
0: Okay, so the older wind turbine sites are being shut off, so the new ones can make more money, and it's causing counties, which are participating in the revenue of these wind turbines, to lose a lot of money. In fact, 18 counties in Minnesota, in their wind belt, quote-unquote, uh, reported a 14% drop in wind tax revenue last year compared to the previous year. That's a big deal. Right, um, And they're trying to figure out ways to deal with this because if, if you can imagine, local municipalities become dependent upon that revenue. It's wind, right? It's pretty consistent. Why aren't we making money? And, I, and, and I'm sure they got that money already allocated to a new fire engine, a new schoolhouse, to whatever, and then to see a more than 10% drop in a year is a big deal. So, Joel, have you seen some of this? Have you seen been around some of this where... They're shutting off wind turbines because of transmission line issues?
2: Yeah, when you go when you drive across southwestern Minnesota, if you drive at night, southwestern Minnesota, southeastern South Dakota, uh, that corner of Iowa, all you see is red lights blinking in the sky. Yeah. There's turbines everywhere around there, right? So with that much power generation in one area, of course the bottleneck is going to be the utility lines. Now, the other side of that over there is you would think it wouldn't be as hard to build them because if you've ever driven through there again, it's all agricultural land. Sure. There, I mean, there, there's a stand of trees for 10 acres and then it's another 2,000 of corn. Right. Uh, and, and that's <laughs> that's basically what's there. And the major cities, right, you have Sioux Falls there. Um, the next major city is Minneapolis and yeah. then Des Moines to the south. So there isn't right. a whole lot of it's mostly rural. Um, so I believe that when they start you know, if they start to try to push some more power lines through the area, it shouldn't be as hard. The only difficult thing is too, I think some of the farmers, cause I, I do some, some, uh, pheasant hunting and stuff out there, but some of the farmers are, they're a bit tired of it. They're getting to that, not in my backyard and they weren't originally. And some, because some of it is there's so many, they're literally taking, uh, taking over every chunk of farm that you see. Um, so there's some people that are starting to get their hair on the back of their neck up a little bit about the, the wind development in the area so mm-hmm. it might be a little bit harder to push push through some of these utility lines but um they need it big time
0: yeah and for the first time in a long time i've actually s- seen some action and some a little bit of forethought here that whole area in minnesota iowa illinois and then going all the way down south into i think louisiana and all the way north up into manitoba in canada so there's like a, a north-south string of states that are all connected together. It's called the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, is the MISO is the, is the uh, grid that ties them all together. They understand that there's, there's a bottleneck there, and they're trying to do something about it because all their solar projects, all the wind projects, all the renewable projects want to be close to the transmission lines. So everybody's stuck around these transmission lines, and they don't have enough to, to feed out. So they're planning a $10 billion project to expand the power lines. And so they have a couple, if if you go online and look at it, there's a couple of, uh, of lines, extensions into sort of southern Minnesota, into Iowa, I think through Illinois. And they're talking about spending $10 billion to support up to 53 gigawatts of additional resources. 53 gigawatts is a lot of power generation. It's about twice what the wind in Texas that they're going to add capacity for and with that 10 billion they think they're going to get about 37 billion in benefits. So they're they're making the the trying to do the economics of this like okay if i put 10 billion in what do i get out? Well I, I almost quadruple my money in this project. So the concern is how fast can you do this? They've been working on this for the last two at least two solid years. And they're getting close to the, to the process starting where, okay, we're going to get the green light and, and go ahead with it. So for that $10 billion to create these power lines, I was shocked, shocked at how many jobs it would create, at least what they're talking about. And Rosemary, I'll even throw your 10% on this. Uh, so they're saying it's going to create 213,000 jobs to build the renewable energy and energy storage facilities. Makes sense. Plus another 120,000 jobs just to create create the transmission facilities. That, and That's transmission lines towers substation switching all all the stuff. So in total it's like 330,000 jobs. That's crazy. Uh, what uh, Joel, what's the population of Minnesota?
2: Well, Minnesota's about 7 to 8 million and if you just kind of look I'm looking at a map here of the where they're going to put these lines. So 7 yeah. to 8 million there. I'm talking 7 in Wisconsin, 6 in Iowa. Well, Illinois got a lot, but I mean you're <laughs> 50, 50 million people 40 million people in this corner of the world Ooh. and um, 300,000 jobs I mean that's that's a big chunk of that's jobs it. that could alleviate some some uh, unemployment rate
0: oh gosh yes it would uh, and they're saying with the 53 gigawatts of added capacity in the lines it would be able to power 12 million homes that's a significant impact for that area now uh, miso thinks it's going to take between seven and ten years for the permitting and construction uh, to, to get this all done but they're working on it and it isn't like they just came to the decision last week like oh we got a problem they've they've seen overheating situations happen more recently they've been watching the obviously watching the grid that's what they do for a living they're watching the grid and they're realizing hey we need to get this project started so that's good. You know, it's good to see something proactive happen in the States where we don't feel like we're always behind the hate ball because uh, lately that's what I, that's what it feels like. It feels like no one's driving this bus.
2: I like the idea of this. Like, so I'm looking at, the, again, looking at this map, and it reminds me of what I saw with my own eyes happen in Texas is those big transmission lines that were heading out to West Texas bringing all this wind energy. And yeah. all of a sudden, little solar solar. P, you know, utility-scale solar PV plants just started popping up within five miles of them all over the place. So when I look at these maps, I think, well, there's there's two or three difficult areas to to build a power line on here. Uh, that there's a chunk going up towards the northeast part of Minnesota. You get into some timber up there. Uh, going across western Wisconsin, you get into the bluffs. That's a little bit right. difficult. But for the most part, all of these all of this proposed lines go through agricultural land. They and, do. Um, That's right. It's yeah, and it's it's prime for popping up solar PV around it, and of course wind, as we'd like to see with some uh, storage facilities. This this could be great for the Midwest.
0: Yeah, let's and let's just see how they're doing here, and see if this project gets green greenlit, because it does mean someone's got to get raise a ten billion dollars, I assume, with rates, electricity rates a little bit to do it. Yeah. But it, 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 if the payback is three or four to one, it really makes sense to do it. Um, Good to see it. So I'll I'll follow this and and I'll check out some other parts of the U.S. on the electricity grid and see what they're doing, too, because they can't be the only one that's actually working on projects. And that's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes to the Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And Rosemary, do you have a highlight of what's coming up on your channel Um. while we're here?
1: Yeah, I think next up is going to be actually a, a video that I recorded when I was in the U.S. I did a tour of Boston Metal, who are making a, a green steel manufacturing process, and they let me see. Uh, it was really cool, actually, because they've got like four different stages of development in their facility. It's actually in a business park. They're making steel in in a business park, and they, yeah, they showed me all the development that they've done to take it from you know what started out as an interesting a uh, result of an experiment at MIT and now you know it's moved up to this um, semi-commercial scale uh, um, process that it, yeah it's, it's a way to make steel without any co2 emissions so it's, it's pretty cool
0: so get on youtube go to engineering with rosie and ring the bell so <laughs> you know when the next youtube video pops up from rosemary and do the same thing for uptime while you're there all right that's going to do it for this week on uptime we'll see you next week